0: Thank you all for coming out. I'm Andrew Gifford, and I'm the publisher uh, with the Santa Fe Writers Project, Alan's publisher. Uh, If you all feel like moving up, that would be great. We can close in the ranks here. So, if anybody wants to, (laughs) that's the excuse to get the comfy couch, right? (laughs) Thank you. And thank you for coming out today. It's a beautiful day. So I know we all need to get back outside as quickly as possible, right? So I never really believed spring would come. Um, this is the third book I've published with Alan, although he's published m- many others. He has uh, five novels out, right? And four collections of short stories, a memoir, and there's many more books coming. But for the Santa Fe Writers Project, we've been collecting his short stories for about seven years now. Uh, And Authentic Captain Marvel Ring kind of finishes phase one of that project. So uh, it's uh, probably the largest and the most ambitious of the three. So I hope you all get a chance to check it out and enjoy it. Uh, most of you know alan you 've heard him on the radio he's uh, he 's the voice of books uh, on all things considered. most of his uh, reviews have been published uh, widely as well so not just on the radio you probably read the reviews as well so I, I certainly go by what he tells me to read um, so I, I think I'll just end it there. We'll just bring him on up. Uh, the web page for Alan, it's com. if you want to find out more about him. And, of course, all the books are there as well. So I hope you'll have a chance to check that out. And Alan?
1: Thank you, Andrew. Th- thank you all for uh, showing up. We all lived through this winter, and we're still not sure it's over. So I, you didn't get to the lacrosse field today, or whatever else is going on, or the harbor. But you got this far, and that's great. Um, as, I, as Andrew said, I've, this is the third volume of stories that uh, he's published with me, and or I published with him. There are two books of novellas, actually, and then and, and these stories. Um, and I've been this is these are about 10 years' worth of short stories. Um, I tend to write a story in between long manuscripts, in between novels and such. Um, as I was paging through, you expect the writer knows what he wants to read, but uh, I'm not sure I want to read a story that would tell you everything you need to know about life and time and space. And will include every emotion, and will allow you to go forward into the day, and maybe for the next few weeks, thinking that life is tolerable. But I haven't written that one yet. <laughs> so, uh, short of perfection, I, I think I'll read. Do, do you all? Let me ask you: Do you know Ansel Adams' photography? Do you know Moonrise, Hernandez, New Mexico, nineteen forty-two? Uh, well, those of you who don't, you'll have an interesting view of this, because this, I'll read this story, which is about the making of that photograph. Um, and actually, you could, if you want, you could go on your little iPads and find it probably by the time I finish reading. Um, but for those of you who don't know it, it's about, it's about this great American photographer uh, and an outing of his in New Mexico, which ends up in this accidental and miraculous uh, occasion when he takes this photograph, which is, I think, one of the most beautiful photographs ever made. And the story is called, after the photograph, Moonrise, Hernandez, New Mexico, 1941. Um, He's staying at um, Ghost Ranch, which is a place that uh, George O'Keefe lived for a time. It's a bit north uh, of the house that she eventually settled in, which is also north of uh, Taos, New Mexico. In the first hour north out of Ghost Ranch, in the station wagon packed to the roof, and him on the verge of grief, they had stopped along the river and helped Michael, that's his son, helped Michael, a small boy at this time, with the viewfinder of the small box camera while Cedric, his tall, jaunty-nosed former best man, wandered off along the pebbled bank in search of his own visions. We'll sit a while, A.A., that's Ansel Adams, said to his son. As if on the mark of some invisible choreographer, together they sank onto their buttocks on the hard surface, feet pointing toward the sparkling, rushing river. For a short while, they watched their breath curl up in the cool air, the morning light had given him such hope, fierce, cool luminescence that seemed to emanate in perfect harmony from every cliff face, every rock formation, every stand of pines. Come in, come in. The picture started, but I'll... Good. In the first three minutes of this movie, this is a story about Ansel Adams, the great American photographer, and the making of... What I I guess you have to say is his iconic photograph, Moonrise, Hernandez, New Mexico, 1941. The morning light had given him such hope, fierce, cool luminescence that seemed to emanate in perfect harmony from every cliff face, rock formation, and stand of pines. So far, nothing had come of it. See that cliff, he said, breaking the silence. Yes, Daddy, Michael said. He was a thin child, built like A.A. himself, with soft touches that certainly came from his mother's side. How odd that in nature you could not make out such easily divisible mathematical properties. But in your own family, in your own children, you could do the math easily. Head, mine. Eyes, hers. Nose, mine. Lips, well, he couldn't really make a decision about the lips. But the boy's chin, yes, his chin, for his daughter at home with her mother... This was an excursion for men and boys. He could do the same. Insects floated past, buzzed, buzzed. The river sparkled. Do you recognize it? A.A., a., that's Ansel Adams said, pointing to the cliff face to their north. I don't know. Miss O'Keefe made it. That's Georgia O'Keefe. She made the cliff, Pop? She made a painting of the cliff. Did I see it? It's in a museum in somewhere. Do you like the stew she made last night? Says so you have to picture George O'Keefe cooking them dinner. Do you like the stew she made last night? The chicken fell away from the bone. The peppers made me sneeze. Your taste leans toward your mother's side, A.A. said. Your mother doesn't like spicy things. A light came into the boy's eye. Do you miss her, Daddy? I do, A.A. said. She says you're happy to get away from her. She shouldn't say those things. He quieted himself down and touched his son's shoulder. Look at that. A hawk paused high above the river as though pinned against an azure cloth backdrop. Daddy, are you and Mom going to get a divorce? A.A. shook his head at the thought, at the air. Did she say that too? She asked me not to say what she says, but you just told me. No, I was just asking. She writes me another letter like the kind I got last night. He fritzed air across his lips, trying to stop himself from further speech. Oh, speech, what good did it do? Always getting him into trouble. And her, writing that letter. What did she write, Daddy? Foolish, naive fellow that he was, he was about to explain, when Cedric, his assistant, came wandering back. Son's nice, he said, removing his eyeglasses and wiping the back of his hand across his brow. Any luck, A.A. said. Cedric shook his head. Flecks of gray in his hair caught the early sun. I'm not like you, Ansel. I don't know what to look for. I didn't see anything. No, no, no. Everyone has an eye. It's like fishing. Some days they just aren't biting. Let's try somewhere else. So they're in hunting. He's hunting a photograph that he hadn't made yet. They got up and returned to the station wagon. What's not biting, Daddy? Michael spoke up from the back seat. Things, he said. What kind of things? The way things look, AA said. Pictures? A.A. A. glanced into the rearview mirror, seeing just the top of his young son's head. Photographs, photographs. Votographs, the boy said, catching the rhythm of the game they played on and off in the car all the way from Yosemite. Smotographs, Cedric said. Hopigraphs, A.A. A. said. Navahographs, Cedric said. Uh-huh, A.A. said. Okay, then. Smokographs, good. Daddy? Yes. Egographs, what? I mean, yokographs. The yoke's on you, son. Ansel, Cedric said, now I know why you take photographs. Why? Because you're not much good at anything else. With a nod, AA acknowledged his friend's joking remark and then kept silent a while. Cliffs made a blur of clayey orange and soft browns. The river which they were following curved into a small canyon and dipped out of sight. Daddy? Yes, Michael. What is it? What's what? What's divorce? Cedric frowned at his friend. What have you fellows been talking about? A.A. shook his head. Nothing Virginia talks to the kids, tries to turn them against me. She says he wanted a divorce. A.A. shook his head again, staring at his son in the rearview mirror. Let's not talk about it now. They rode in silence. Light danced along the tree line. Miles and miles up the trauma valley, they stopped for lunch. A lovely repast, as it turned out, that Miss O'Keefe herself prepared for them early that morning before she set out on her daily work. Slices of roast turkey... Freshly baked tortillas. He had awakened to the sound of Miss O'Keefe's housekeeper, slapping the maza between her hands before setting it in the oven to bake. Pat-a-pat, pat-a-pat, pat-a-pat. Sweet peppers, almond paste sweets, lemonade from a tall jug which he poured into the cups she had packed along with everything else. Now the sun poised at full mast, nothing but approving mouth noises as the three of them ate. Then Michael went down a few yards toward the river. It had reappeared again at the turn of the road where they'd stopped to eat. He went to pee, which gave Cedric the opportunity to speak about what, given the look in his eyes, seemed to have been troubling him. This makes me sad, Ansel, he said. What does? What does? This talk about ending it. Me too, A.A. said. But you're just the husband, Cedric said. Think of how it makes the best man feel. They both laughed just as Michael worked his way back up the slope, arms swinging for ballast. What's so funny, he said. Children had it both ways. They could disengage easily from the talk of adults and then, on occasion, as of now, fiercely demand their rights to be included. Nothing? It's not nothing. Tell me what? Cedric spoke up. Your father and I were recalling something funny that once happened to us. What? Michael said in a rather ferocious manner that was unusual for him. I, A, A, spoke now. I was taking a picture but forgot to take the lens cap off. One of the oldest and dumbest mistakes known to man. "'Whose picture?' Michael said. "'I don't remember that.' "'You remember the joke?' Michael said. "'Sometimes that's all we remember,' A.A. said. "'A joke is like a ghost of something funny that's happened.' "'Hey, see those trees?' he pointed up the slope. "'Who's for a little nap in the shade?' "'I thought we were going to make pictures,' Michael said. "'You can't just take a picture for the sake of taking one,' A.A. said. "'You have to find the right opportunity.' "'All you make is trees and rocks and sky,' Michael said. "'A.A. shook his head. "'Did you just think of that?' "'Why?' nothing. The boy's eyes flashed. Mom said it, I agree. The boy folded his arms across his chest. A.A. felt an icy heaviness slant along his sternum as he walked the few yards to the spot that a few moments before had seemed ideal for napping. Now he couldn't rest, his mind roaring with all this turmoil. His wife's arguments against him, poisoning the children, dissenting from his art. Once she had understood him so clearly, Now it seemed, now, now, the miserable now of now, that she was turning against him, and worse, turning the children against him. The brushing of the wind in the leaves, sounding like a river running in air, the shift back and forth between light and shadow as clouds played across the face of the sun. Cedric's labored breathing as his friend sank into slumber. All this kept him awake. Then he was out, awakened by Michael's shout. Look, look, the boy pointed up at the blue scrim of sky, where a hawk rose high above them, a wriggling vine, rope, Snake, snake in its talons, Cedric said, uh, set up. What is it? His eyes followed Michael's pointing finger. Oh, he said, the flag of Mexico. Why was he doing this? Driving along, wrestling with life, with time, damn drag on all, himself, the children, not to mention her, time and light, f-stop of things. Flash and ripples, sunlit river, glint of hawk's eye, eagle claw, driving down this road, look at cactus sky, mountains, horizon, what? Michael asked me something, what? I'm sorry, I was daydreaming, go back to sleep. Ice chill in my chest, thinking of her words, can't even remember specific, but she makes a mood even at this remote, using the children. I would write you my love in a myriad shining lines, shine on republic, roll on Robinson Jeffers lines, that's what, there's a poet, I, I would be the ocean, the, this, he's thinking of Jeffrey's poem here. The deep, dark, shining Pacific Pacific leans on the land, feeling his cold strength to the outermost margins. Let me see, do I remember that? Yes, I remember the lines. The extraordinary patience of things. This beautiful place, he wrote, defaced with a crop of suburban houses. How beautiful when we first beheld this land. Unbroken field of poppy and lupin walled with clean cliffs. No intrusion but two or three Horses pasturing. Or a few milk cows. Rubbing their flanks on the outcrop rock heads. Now the spoiler has come. Does it care? Not faintly. It has, it has all time. It knows the people are a tide. That swells and in time will ebb. And all their works dissolve. Meanwhile the image of the pristine beauty. Lives in the very grain of the granite. Safe as the endless ocean. That climbs our cliff. As for us. We must uncenter our minds from ourselves. We must unhumanize our views a little and become confident as the rock and ocean that we were made from. And if I could make something as beautiful as that, what would I be? Daddy, from the back seat. Yes, Michael, I'm thirsty. Cedric, oh, he's asleep. Wait, Michael. Daddy, I know you're tired. It's an empty day. We didn't catch any fish. We're going home. We weren't fishing, Daddy. That was a metaphor, son. comes from poetry. You have to listen to some poetry. Want me to say a poem for you? I'm tired, Michael said. All right, now just dig in in the pack, and you'll find the water bottles just behind you. So much stuff here, Daddy. I know, I know. Who knows where anything is? Can you wait a little while? We'll be back in Taos before too long. You can get a a long, cool drink at Mrs. Luhans, and we'll eat a good dinner. They'll roast something. They're always roasting something. Can you wait? I think so. Good you're a good boy, Michael. They traveled a few more miles on this rocky road. Then he spoke out. What's that, Daddy? Michael said. More poetry, son. I'm remembering the extraordinary patience of things. It's by a poet named Robinson Jeffers. This beautiful place defaced with a crop of suburban houses. How beautiful when we first beheld it. Unbroken field of poppy and lupin, walled with clean cliffs. No intrusion but two or three horses pasturing or a few milk cows rubbing their flanks on the outcrop rock heads. Now the spoiler has come. Does it care? Not faintly. It has all time. It knows the people are a tide that swells and in time will ebb and all their works dissolve. Meanwhile the image of the pristine beauty lives in the very grain of the granite, safe as the endless ocean that climbs our cliff. As for us, we must uncenter our minds from ourselves. We must unhumanize our views a little and become confident as the rock and ocean. The voice, his own, fell silent. As they approached the village of Hernandez, a moon the size of a small coin rose in the east over distant clouds and snow peaks. And in the west, the late afternoon sun gained the crest of a south flowing cloud bank and splashed its final brilliance upon the crosses in the cemetery of the church rough, tough O'Keeffe had painted some years before. He steered the station wagon onto the deep shoulder at the side of the road and stopped and jumped out, running to the rear of the vehicle and wrenching open the gate. Cedric, Michael, we don't have much time. View camera, lens. He was breathing heavily, heavily, but steadily. Assembled, still in control of his breath. Image composed and focused. Ansel, Cedric called out. The light meter, where is it? He heard his voice rise, nearly as high as the rising moon. Daddy, help Cedric find the light meter, son. Hurry, hurry. Behind him the sun was about to disappear again behind the clouds. He was desperate, holding his breath. Here was the dream part, the rest all real doing the math for a celestial body as easily as he might have for someone in his own family posed there before him. It came to him that the luminescence of the moon was 250 candles per square foot. He placed his value on zone seven of the exposure scale. With the Rattan G number 15 deep yellow filter, the exposure was one second at f-stop 32. He had no accurate reading of the shadow foreground values. He released the shutter and breathed deeply at last. After the first exposure, he quickly reversed the 8 by 10 film holder to make a duplicate negative, for he knew in his nerves he had visualized one of those important images that seemed prone to accident or physical defect. As he pulled out the slide, the sunlight left the crosses on the graveyard. Daddy? Yes, Michael. He was drenched in sweat as though he had waded into a pond up to his shoulders. I found the light meter. You did? Good lad. I'm amazed we can find anything in this car. Here, Michael said. Too late, A.A. said, taking the instrument from his son. But thank you. I think we did all right. Cedric, taking off his glasses, rubbed his face with his knuckles. What'd you get? Were they biting? Maybe a big one, A.A. said. I don't see what you were looking at, Cedric said. Put your glasses back on. Cedric complied. Complied. The sky had darkened in the east, and now all the horizons had melted into a dense, muddy line, broken here and there only by larger trails of dust and smoke. I still don't see. A.A. took another deep breath and nodded at his dear friend, best pal, member of the wedding a long time ago, and the boy standing next to him, this child he loved so much. What would happen to him, and to his daughter, to all of them? You will see, he said, feeling his grieving heart turn into a bright, cold moon the size of a coin. I hope you will. I do hope you'll see. Thank you. So, uh, one story from a bunch of stories. Uh, there are other little historical stories. There's one about Ben Franklin. Uh, who, there's one line in the autobiography of Ben Franklin where he talks about on his trip from Boston down to New York to Long Island and then on a sloop across uh, Raritan Bay trying to get to Philadelphia, he uh, stopped. They were blown off by us a little storm onto the beach at Perth Amboy, which is my hometown, Perth Amboy, New Jersey. So there's one line about the night he spent in Amboy, and I've read a little story about that. Um, and some other New Jersey stories. A story about my mother's death told from her voice. Um, a lot of other small events. A woman dancer comes back, to New York from England trying to get her hip repaired. Takes a wheelchair ride into, a dangerous wheelchair ride into Central Park. Um, Can I answer any questions you might have? How long does it take to write a story? Why do you write stories? Yes, sir. Well, for the for the For the historical pieces, yeah, although the, I mean I'd read the autobiography of Ben Franklin and had you know writers sometimes keep notebooks, and I had that little that line uh, actually, the whole story comes out of this line, but the wind abating the next day, we made a shift to reach Amboy before night, having been thirty hours on the water without victuals or any drink but a bottle of filthy rum. The water we sailed on being salt. So that that little tiny paragraph from his autobiography brought this story to me because um, the beach he spends the night on is the beach I played on as a kid. So me and Ben Franklin we played on the same beach. So th- I count that as uh, research. And I read so, and I read a biography of Franklin. And for this Ansel Adams story, I read uh, a biography or two. And that technical description of how he gets that shot together, that's his words uh, that he told the biographer. But the whole story of the day with son was something you... Well, I, he, had, he had a troubled marriage and the children um, were in trouble for a while. I've uh, only had two divorces, but I know that it's hard on children. <laughs> um, so that's how I, I, I put that together. And I love that photograph. It's, one of my favorite photographs of all time. Although the time of photography is very short. <laughs> photography is its an infant art, actually. Um, my uh, son is a, a photographer and works at, he's an art director at Sony Music, so I know a little bit about how somebody works to make photographs. Um, it's, it's quite a thrill to Buy a photograph from your own child. So he he. Uh, he did a photograph of uh, the the very young LL Cool J, uh, which I bought from him. And, yes, ma'am. Do you have any reservations about imagining the thoughts of the person? Uh, yes and no. I think you you, you read. As much as you can, if you're working with a real character, a real person, and you work in between, you work in the spaces. Right? I mean, you wouldn't. It's a you make make it up, but you're making it up from material that you familiarize yourself with. Um, unlike, say, my dear late friend Joe McGinnis, who did that dreadful biography of uh, Teddy Kennedy, where he just was completely profligate with. Inventing things that Kennedy thought on the night that the Kepnekney woman died, and as he went into the water, I mean, and then, th- th- I mean, that crosses a line, I think. But I, I, you know, I think, I mean, Joyce Oates does this all the time with uh, public figures. Um, I mean, anybody who's a public figure has, has to live with the dread that if they're public enough, good or bad. <laughs> Somebody in the future, some writer in the future, may possibly try to invent some part of their life much, t- but they're probably dead by that time. Um, so I mean, I tread lightly um as for stories where you know where the characters are kind of a mix of yourself and people you know and people you've observed uh then you do it or say whatever you want, but you have to do it beautifully, or nobody's going to believe it anyway. So do you do you have a reservation about that kind of fiction? Um, like you I think sometimes take Too many liberties. liberties. Yeah. But I you mean know, all biographers do. I mean biography is really fiction anyway. Um, memoir is fiction, autobiography is fiction. Everything is fiction. Your checkbook is fiction. You're about to file your taxes. What could be more fictional than that? (laughs) So, if everything is fiction, what's real? (laughs) That's a good thing. Pardon? Oh, uh, certainly. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I wrote one memoir before memoir was cool, and uh, I mean, I, you know, I knew that I was, at the very least, using the techniques of a fiction writer to make memoir. And any memoirist who doesn't try to use Techniques from from fiction is making a big mistake, because uh, I mean, you want if you're writing about your life, you want to dramatize it in, in such a way that people are going to be interested in reading about it, um, and so you have to go to fiction for the techniques, and then you begin to think, well, well, actually, in uh, Gore Vidal, the late great overweight Gore Vidal. Um, said he was in, i think he said it in palimpsest this sort of memoir that he published about 20 some years ago he's describing walking along the mall in washington as the monuments are going up with his grandfather senator gore from oklahoma and he's about 7 years old gore vidal is 7 years old at the time and he's talking to, he just, he's recounting this conversation he had with his blind grandfather. You know, Senator Gore was blind and Vidal would often lead him into the Senate chambers and take him to his seat when the Senate came into session. Um, and so an interviewer, some months after that book came out, and this is all recorded somewhere, I know I didn't make this up, um, Is said, well, my, my, what a memory you have. You recall this conversation that you had with your grandfather when you were only seven years old. That's extraordinary. And Vidal, who didn't waste any time and never suffered a fool, he said, you idiot. He said, I made that up. How could I possibly remember what that conversation? He said, I knew vaguely and generally what it was about. And I know how I spoke when I was a seven-year-old boy. And I know how my grandfather spoke. But if you so that sounds kind of scurrilous, but that's how the great Thucydides, the, the the great Greek historian, wrote. I mean, he he was not there when Pericles gave his great speech about this huge battle that he'd won, but he knew Pericles, he'd heard Pericles give other speeches, he knew the facts of the occasion, and so he gives Pericles' speech. And that's the only way we know what Pericles might have said Um, so it's an old technique and i know you might want to throw out every book in your house when you hear how writers make it up but (laughs) what's left Uh, photographs i suppose histories are part of fiction so what's left ticket stubs i don't know you can counterfeit those um where's the truth Huh? Math is the truth, right? Math, yeah. Yeah. Well, Pharoah Williams says happiness is the truth. Yes? Um, You you mentioned that you write short stories usually between longer pieces like novels and that. Yes. What kind of shifts do you have to make um, as a writer in terms of your vision, in terms of the scope, all of those as you're going back and forth? Um, I can describe them, although I don't Recognizes as making making them it's kind of like breakfast lunch dinner you make you have a different expectation um, and so you know you expect certain things at breakfast certain things at lunch you expect certain amenities with dinner that you don't ex- expect at breakfast and so I think if you go back and forth among the the literary genres you can feel those you bring something different to the table, and you expect to make something different on the table and uh, it it's almost an instinct, but it's not really an instinct, but it's something you cultivate over years and years and years of reading and and you know succeeding at reading and failing at writing. Um, I think first you have to succeed at reading, and uh, you have to love to read and you have to fulfill your expectations of you know you want to get read stuff you love but you also want to read stuff that's going to teach you other things about how to read and I think if you know how to read you're kind of a a leap sort of like you know in in a thriller it's there's a building and your hero's on the building and then he wants to jump to the building next to him and if it's a space that's short enough you can probably leap from reader to writer uh, because you've learned all the moves without even knowing it by by reading all the great books. you know. Jorge Luis Borges has a little poem called The Reader, and he says, I'm not as proud of the books I've written as I am of the books I've read. I mean, none of us is going to write Shakespeare. None of us is going to write Chaucer. None of us is going to write Dickens. But we know those are possibilities because we've read deeply in them, if we care about the art. And so we we know what we should be doing, and sometimes we actually can accomplish what we should be doing. Have you ever had a story that grew into, you know, you're
0: writing it and you think, ah, no, this is, there's more to tell here. You come
1: and love a piece, a novel, piece of novel mm-hmm. um, No, I can't say I had. I mean, and I think that's a rare occasion. <laughs> Again, it's, it's a, I mean, you wouldn't bring a, you know, a, a, a high jump pole to a tennis match, or a, you know, a baseball bat to a swimming match. So after a while, you you know what you should be using to create what you're hoping to create. I mean, I can think. Lord Jim Conrad's novel came from a story. Um, the great novel, I don't know how many of you know it, Under the Volcano by the British writer Malcolm Lowry. I mean that started with a story um, and probably if we, you know, somebody locked us in the room by nightfall we would come up with ten other examples but very, it's rare I think that that a novel comes from a story or that uh, a story comes from a novel. Um, that, That'd be a great weight loss program to (laughs) cut everything out of a novel, right down to a a little story. So you you kind of train, and you know that how to you know you run a hundred yard dash differently than you'd run a cross country. And uh, so you use certain muscles for a certain time, or you don't, depending upon what you're trying to accomplish. And uh, you know after a while, um, some people. You know, it takes five years or ten years, other people takes twenty years. You you eventually have a develop that sense of your relation to certain material. Uh and then there's always life, which intervenes. Uh it can change you forever, right? If you die it's very difficult to write. Uh, or if you live badly, it can often make things difficult. Uh, i was just reading a review in the current Atlantic Monthly, Barry Miles' new biography, William Burroughs, who wrote Naked Lunch. I mean, and, and Burroughs, of all the so-called beats, was the most determined to destroy himself. And, but he couldn't do it. I mean, just drug after drug after drug. Uh, and he just couldn't do it before he f- finished Naked Lunch, which is a great book, and he never wrote anything worthwhile after. Um I mean, in my own case, I I didn't start writing until I was in my late 30s. Um, I had writer's block for 38 years, and um, and eventually, I you know, I took did jo- took jobs, worked at various pr- jobs, and went to graduate school and all that stuff, and thought, you know, I was in my late 20s, and I thought, ha ha, I'm an adult. Uh, I should have a profession, and so I went to graduate school and did a degree in comparative literature and thought I would be a college teacher. But Fortunately, I got fired after 10 years of my first college job, so that's when I started writing full-time. But I was almost 40 before I published my first short story. Actually, about two weeks before I turned... three weeks before I turned 40. And that night, we ate steak. We had planned to have scrambled eggs, but... Uh, what else might you be interested in? Yes, we're ready. We're ready. Okay. Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Well, I shall now recite to you the beginning of my new novel. Um, so, you know, I, I think just if you love the short story, there, we're kind of in a, in a golden age of short fiction and the, so many wonderful writers to choose among. Um, and, uh, I wish you well in your reading adventures. Yeah, yes? I don't know if you uh, made a transition from NPR to writing, or you still doing both, but... Yeah, I'm still doing both. Well. Do they support you? Do they feed each other somehow? Well, uh, um, I mean, I, most of the reviewing that I do are, are books that I would probably read anyway. Because um, since I get to choose, uh, I don't usually. I'm lucky enough to to find work that I really like. I rarely do a negative review because I only have you know two minutes, two minutes and twenty seconds a week. I don't want to waste it on a bad book unless you know some bad book comes along that I think you know people should avoid at all costs. Um, But that's you know that's afternoon work, and I write fiction in the morning, and and so divide my day like that. Well, thank you. Happy reading.